Okay, I'm back. It's funny, you know, when I was 30s, we'll say, uh, it was a lot easier. Yeah, yeah, a few weeks ago. Um, it was a lot easier doing this softball ministry, you know, the sports ministry with all these kids. I still love the ministry, but I find that my body's not reacting like it used to to that. Strange, huh? Okay, uh, we're going to continue on in the Gospel of Matthew today. Today, the title of the message, you may have seen it, uh, is Save the Date. So we're going to continue. Uh, we've been preaching through the book of Matthew for some time, and we've divided it into sub-series so we can more adequately cover all the subject matter. Uh, but we are in a series right now called Blind Faith. Now, last week, uh, Nate preached on the parable of the landowner and the vineyard. You guys remember that? Okay, good. That's the right answer. Um, now, this week, we're going to be discussing the parable of the wedding feast. Right Now, one thing I want you to remember is that a parable is an earthly story that tells a heavenly truth. That's all it is, an earthly story that tells a heavenly truth. So the thing that's similar about these two messages is last week's and today's message are both talking about the Jews' rejection of the kingdom, okay? And they're both linked to that. He's trying to get this message through to them. Now, when I say kingdom, I'm talking about the millennial kingdom, the thousand-year reign of Christ, um, which is a whole other sermon I'll talk about another time, coming soon. But um, the Jews... The Jews uh, viewed serving in this millennial kingdom as like the greatest honor. I mean, the greatest honor they could achieve was to serve in the Messianic kingdom because that was promised to Abraham years ago, and they really wanted to serve in that. That was the ultimate, ultimate honor. But the problem was they kind of lost track of what the kingdom was about because you have to remember for years, for centuries, they were being, you know, they'd be obedient and God would bless them. Then they'd be disobedient, and they'd be overtaken by another nation and put into captivity. And then they would come out, and then they'd do something stupid again, and then they'd be back in captivity. So they were constantly being under someone else's reign and rule. So they wanted the kingdom to be kind of for a different purpose. They wanted the kingdom to be the opportunity for God to make them this dominant nation again, where they ruled over everyone. I mean, they wanted to be a dominant world power, and they kind of saw the kingdom as their opportunity to have revenge over their enemies. They're like, yeah, when the kingdom comes, you guys will all be serving us. I mean, they were losing sight as to what the kingdom was really about, right? And that's why one of the reasons they rejected Jesus, because they didn't want a loving Messiah that would offer peace and forgiveness to anyone who would accept it. They didn't want that. They wanted a military Messiah. They wanted Jesus to appear in camel robes, right? I mean, ready to take over the whole region, right, and give them military strength and might, and that's what they wanted. They wanted total, immediate world domination, right, and that's what they thought the kingdom was about. And they didn't understand, they had the kingdom completely twisted, because the kingdom wasn't about them at all. It was about glorifying Jesus Christ, God's Messiah, right? It was, it was a, that's what the whole kingdom was set up for, and they, they just didn't get that. So Jesus is going to use this parable to kind of reveal the depth of their rejection, and uh, today we'll see that God is still sending invitations to all of us uh, into his kingdom, but it's up to us to accept it and save that date. So let's jump right in. Matthew chapter 22, starting in verse 1. And it says, Jesus spoke to them again in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. Okay, now weddings and wedding feasts were a big deal in that culture. I mean, they were a big deal. And the more prominent and the more wealthy the family that gave the wedding feast, uh, the more elaborate the celebration, right? And so here's how it would work, and this is kind of weird. But the couple would actually consummate their marriage on the first day of the wedding feast. 
But some of these wedding feasts would last for up to seven days. I mean, they were already married, it was already consummated, but they would party, literally, this is what they were doing, for seven days. It was a big, big deal. And so Jesus used this because he knew they would get what he was alluding to by using this feast. Because the Jews knew that there was going to be a messianic feast in the kingdom, right? They were looking forward to that messianic feast that would, that would come someday. And Jesus thought, if I use this feast, I can draw some parallels and they'll see it, right? In Revelation, John describes this messianic feast in the kingdom. Revelation 19.7 says, Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean. Now remember this, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Remember that, we'll come back to that. Verse 9, then he said to me, right, blessed are those who are invited to what? The marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are true words of God. Okay, so let's take a look at this. So the king in this parable was supposed to represent God the Father. So the Son would represent Jesus. There we go. Like three of you answer. You can all answer if you like. That would make me sound less foolish. But anyway, the, the Son would be talking about Jesus. So this king prepares this elaborate wedding feast. I mean, this massive wedding feast. And he sends out invitations. Right Now, in this culture, to be invited to an event by a king was a huge, huge honor. And since it was a king, you know, it was kind of mandatory that you attend. I mean, it was sin's invitation, but they knew that, I better show up, right? It was kind of mandatory that they attend that. And especially this one, because this wedding feast was about celebrating the king's own son's wedding. So the ultimate sign of disrespect would be to reject that invitation. It would be the ultimate sign of disrespect to just decline that offer i mean it'd be like imagine if the president of our country sent you an invitation and said i want you personally to sit by me and my family in my son's wedding i mean that's a huge honor no matter who the president is it's the office that we respect and that would be a huge huge honor and what excuse could you really give him for skipping that but this is exactly what they're about to do let's take a look at this matthew 22 3 Jesus said, and he sent out his slaves, or servants, depending on your translation, to call those who had been invited to the wedding feast, uh, and, there were, and they were unwilling to come. Again, he sent out other slaves, saying, tell those who have been invited, behold, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fatted uh, livestock are all butchered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went their way, one to his own farm and another to his business. And the rest seized his slaves and mistreated them and killed them. But the king was enraged, and he sent his armies to destroy those murderers and to set their city on fire. Okay, now this parable is full of imagery. And the Jews should have seen this imagery. Okay, because the king's servant that was spoken of in verse 3, the first set of servants is representative of the Old Testament prophets. Right, now the invited guests represented Israel because they were God's chosen people, right? Now, the prophets, if you study back in the Old Testament, spent years begging, begging Israel to stay focused on God, not to intermarry with pagans, not to get caught up in idolatry. They spent years saying, would you just keep your eyes on God, change your ways, turn away from this, this foolishness you guys have started to seek after, and just get back to serving 
God. And the prophets even told them, listen, there's going to be a coming, uh, a coming messianic kingdom. And they even told them how to recognize it. Yet they still rejected him. And even Isaiah referred to the kingdom as a feast. He talked about this messianic feast, right? Isaiah 25, starting verse 6. It says, in Jerusalem, uh, the Lord of heaven's armies will spend what? Will spread, I'm sorry, spread a wonderful feast for all the people of the world. It will be a delicious banquet with clear, well-aged wine and choice meat. There he will remove the cloud of gloom, the shadow of death that hangs over the earth. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away all tears. Don't you look forward to that day when he can wipe, when you just don't have to worry about anything and there's no hurt anymore and you, you can't be disenfranchised by anybody? I just think that's amazing. It says, and he will remove forever all the insults and mockery against his land and people the Lord has spoken. So let's take a look at this. So the first invitation goes out, and they reject it. They just reject it. Now, I don't know why. Maybe because they hate weddings. I don't know. But I, most, most likely, because the way it describes it, most likely they just felt like they were too busy. They're just too busy to mess with the king's son's wedding, right? And they probably thought, you know, my time is precious. I, I use my time to make money for my family, to gain prominence. It's just not worth wasting my precious time on. I mean, after all, we have farms to run. We have businesses to run. Who has time for this feast? You know, it's kind of sad on a side note. People get this same mentality about church. Have you ever noticed that? And then when things start falling apart, they wonder why. It's because you can't put God on the back burner and expect him to still bless you. But this was their mentality. They were too busy. It was about them. So we're just going to miss this one because we've got things to do. Surely the king will get it. But to the king, this would have been perceived as the ultimate disrespect or hatred. And to him, it would have meant that either you hate the king, you hate his son, or you hate the bride. Because in his mind, that's the only three reasons you wouldn't come, and none of those were acceptable. Right? So that's the only thing he would accept. Now, I kind of get it. Let's be honest. Some weddings can be boring. Let's be honest. Am I right? Raise your hand if you like sometimes dread a wedding. Be honest. Everybody's kind of afraid to raise their hand. You know what I'm talking, especially those weddings. You ever go to the wedding where after the wedding, you sit there for two hours waiting for them to get pictures taken? You ever been to that wedding? And all the love you had for the bride and groom disappears, and you just want to choke them out with a jump rope. You know what I mean? And then they finally get it over with, and here comes this MC who releases tables one at a time to go eat. How many people always sit at the wrong end? How many people do that? <laughs> and by the time you get up there, all that's left is a few overcooked weenies dipped in some mystery sauce <laughs> and some nasty pasta salad. But anyway, let's go past Chris, Chris's complaints there about that. But anyway, the wedding guest rejection symbolizes the Jews' rejection of these prophets. I mean, it symbolizes how they rejected the prophets and just pursued power and they pursued religion, but they rejected the word of God and the prophecy of God. And Jeremiah even spoke of how their continual rejection would have consequences. Jeremiah 7.13 says, And now, because you have done all these things, declares the Lord, uh, and I spoke to you, rising up early and speaking, but you did not hear. And I called to you, but you did not answer. Therefore, I will do to the house, uh, to the house which is called by my name, in which you trust, and to the place which I gave you and your fathers, as I did to Shiloh. And Shiloh was utterly destroyed. So he's saying, because of your continual rejection, I'm going to completely destroy your kingdom, right? So they knew, they were warned of the consequences, and they continually rejected. 
Now back to our parable. So the king decides to send a second invitation with other servants, right? So he sends a second invitation. Now this really isn't uncommon in this time because culturally it was customary to send two invitations at that time. They would send one invitation that said, here's the wedding, save the date. Here's the day of the wedding, save the date. And then they would send a second invitation to usually send their servants and say, it's ready. It's ready to go. Party time. Come on out. Everything's done. The food's cooked. Just come and eat, right? So it was customary to send two invitations. But in this case, the first invite was flat out rejected. I mean, completely rejected. And yet he sent a second offer. So this was obviously a very gracious and forgiving king to send a second offer. Because I'm going to be honest with you. If I sent out that invitation and you blew me off, I wouldn't send another one. How many people agree with me? Would you send a second one? Right. I wouldn't send a second one. But the parallel is trying to draw here is like this king, God is also patient with us. And even when we reject, even when we look past the invitation he sends to us every day that he reaches out to people with, even when we look past that, he always gives us a second chance, whether we deserve it or not. Look at 2 Peter 3, 9. <coughs> it says, The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is what? Patient. <coughs> Patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. I never understood. There's a lot of doctrines out there that teach that God only sent his son to die for so many people. I never got that. I never got that. I'm like, you know, that would be just cruel, wouldn't you think? I asked a guy one time, I said, how can you believe that? He said, well, the fact that he lets anybody go displays how gracious he is. I go, what? I don't think I follow. That'd be like if somebody walked into Taco Bell with an Uzi and killed half the people. He said, you can't do anything. I'm as gracious as God. I let you guys live. You know what I mean? Morbid illustration. But that's not the God we serve. The God we serve wants everyone to change their mind and repent and come to him and believe, right? So how many times... If you think back, how many times in your life have you felt God calling you? And people say, well, I don't understand what you mean by God calling you. But I think you do. Have you ever been in, for instance, has everything ever been crashing down in your life? Who's ever had that moment where everything's just coming in? Right? And when everything's crashing down and everything's going wrong, what's this first thought that comes to your head? I I just need God in my life. Anybody ever been to that, that point where you're just going, I don't know why all this is happening, but I know God and I aren't where we should be, and I need to get him straight in my life because I don't want to live like this. Or have you ever had those, those, those amazing things that happen in your life and you call them luck instead of calling them what they are, God reaching out to you? When I was 19, I had a brand new truck, which I never should have had, and a semi runs a stop sign, and I broadside a semi at 50 miles an hour. And neither one of us were wearing seatbelts, and my brother-in-law came out of it with a nick on his ear, and that's it. If you saw the truck, it was folded into a ball after that. We had to kick the doors open to get out. When they picked the vehicle up, the guy goes, man, nobody lived in this accident. Do you guys know who was driving? We go, you know, me. And what did I do? I said, man, I was lucky. My dad pulls me aside and he said, son, you weren't lucky. He said, that was God's patience. That was God telling you, I have more for you. This is how volatile life is. You need to pay attention. I'm trying to show you that I'm here for you if you would just turn to me. So God continually 
continually reaches out to us. But a lot of times, just like the Jews, we get sidetracked with our pursuit of wealth, with our pursuit of relationships, with just our pursuit of life, and we put them on the back burner and reject them. So, I mean, we can't be too hard on them, but still, I mean, they did reject him, but this king was patient and gracious, and he sends out another invitation. And he sa- you notice it says he sent other servants. He sent other servants. Maybe he thought, well, maybe he didn't like my first servants. Maybe if I send these out, they'll accept the invitation, right? And he says, go out and tell them that everything's ready. All they have to do is come and dine. That's it. Show up, eat, enjoy, drink, be merry. That's all they have to do. Go tell them that. So he's saying, basically, the feast is ready. Eat before it goes bad. And then he says, I've, you know, I've killed my oxen and my fatted cattle. So this was saying that the meal was elaborate and the preparations were great and elaborate also. So think about this. He's saying, I have a very expensive and exquisite feast just waiting for them. It would be like if someone invited you to have Kobe beef and lobster today. How many people would turn that down? Look, nobody. You have some people go, I don't like lobster. Give it to the guy beside you. Eat his steak. I'm just saying. <laughs> you know, I mean, this is turning down a choice, choice meal. And he sends different servants to offer it. So how did these invitees, these prospective wedding guests respond to the second set of messengers? They killed him. They're like, you again? Didn't we tell you once we don't want to go? And so they literally murdered the king's servants. Right now, what this is, is the second set of servants represents Jesus, John the Baptist, and the disciples. Because God sent them to continue bringing this message first to Israel, then to everyone else. And they came, and and what did they preach the entire time they were on the earth? They preached, repent for what? The kingdom is at hand. They kept saying, listen, repent, or change your mind, change your ways. The same things the prophets were saying to the Jews in the Old Testament. They were saying, listen, stop pursuing power, stop pursuing religion, stop worrying about who's in control of what. Change your ways and just turn to God's Messiah. Everything is ready. See, a lot of people don't know this, but had the Jews accepted Jesus, the the millennial kingdom would have started right then. It was ready. It could have started right then. But they rejected him. So this second set of servants represents the work that Jesus and John the Baptist and the disciples did. Now, how did they receive Jesus and John the Baptist? They killed him. They didn't just kill Jesus and John the Baptist. Notice it's just like the king's servants in the parable. They killed the second set. They killed Jesus, John the Baptist, and countless disciples, not just the 12, 11 of the 12 died at the hands of martyrdom, right? And, but countless other ones that were not in the 12 that were killed for their faith, these servants were killed just like in that parable. Now, in the parable, the king was angry. So he sends his armies to kill them and destroy their city. Now, do you think that sounds a little extreme? Anybody think that sounds extreme? It's really not. It's really not because they're murderers. You know what I mean? It's not like they didn't pay their parking tickets. I mean, he sent servants to them, (coughs) and they killed them. They just killed them. So he's like, okay, enough. And he sent out his armies, and they they killed them and burnt their cities. 
And here's the other thing is not to mention, I mean, in their culture, the king was judged, jury, and executioner, and he didn't owe an explanation to anybody. He could do whatever he wanted. He didn't have to explain himself. But he did have a good reason. I mean, they were murderers. Now, this section of the parable is kind of different because this section of the parable is actually prophecy. Right? He's telling them this is what's going to happen by using this illustration in this parable. Because they were going to continually reject him. They were going to kill his Messiah. They were going to kill many of his disciples. And in A.D. 70, a Roman general named Titus would come into Jerusalem and would lay it waste, burn the city to the ground, destroy the temple, kill and capture thousands of people. And all of that was happening for the same reason it happened in the parable. This was how God gave justice to their rejection and murder of his servants. This is the exact same thing. So he was kind of giving them a glimpse that, hey, you will answer for this. Just like they're answering in this parable, he wanted them to know, I know that you realize I'm talking about you. Have you ever been around somebody that's trying to talk about you but not talk about you? You know what I mean? Where they, like, use illustrations that are exactly you, but they don't. I'm just like, you know, dude, I know you're talking about me. Say my name, right? This is exactly what Jesus was doing. They knew he was talking about them. And so he throws in for good measure, just so you know. The king destroyed those people who rejected and murdered his servants. That's coming your way. It's not yet, but it's coming your way. Now, here's the thing I think a lot of us forget. All of us will have to answer for our rejection someday, whether you're a believer or not. Did you know that? You don't, we don't get away with, with anything. And we will have to answer for that today. And I'll explain that later through this message, but... That's something I think a lot of us forget. We get to the point, you ever notice it gets easier and easier to reject what God's calling you to do? Anybody ever notice that? At first you like, it's hard to miss church, it's hard to not read, it's hard to, you know, not pray like you should, and you make excuses. And then the next time, it's, it's a little easier, right? And then the next time, it's a little easier than that. And before long, you don't even think twice about it. It's not even in your mind. And we forget that we will answer that, whether you're a believer or not, and I'll talk about that here in a minute. So let's see what happens next. Matthew 22, 8. Then he said to his slaves, The wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main highways, that's important, and as many as you find there, invite to the wedding feast. Those slaves went out into the streets and gathered together all they found. Listen, listen to this, both evil and good. And the wedding was filled with dinner guests. Now this is interesting because the main highways here actually translates to it meant the roads outside of Jerusalem, coming in and out of Jerusalem. This was the outside highways. Now, in those areas, on those main highways, that's where you found the common people and the Gentiles and the beggars and the thieves. This is where you found those people, right? This was, there was the Jews and this was basically everybody else, right? And this is really awesome because this represents the church age and the church age is that time from when, Jesus opened it up to anyone who would believe, and the focus left the Jews and focused more on whosoever would, whosoever will believe. That's the era we still live in now. This is what this represents. Because, listen, it had to be offered to the Jews first because of that promise, but when they rejected it, then he offered it to everyone. Now, understand that he knew they would reject it before he created the world. So we were always part of the plan. People always make it sound like if you're not a Jew, you were an afterthought. God didn't create you to be an afterthought. He created you to spend eternity with you. So you were involved in the plan. They just had to be offered that first. 
So basically what the king did was he said, okay, so, so the invited guests aren't worthy. Whoever wants to come, whoever will accept my invitation and save the date and show up, whoever will do that, let's invite them, and they'll be welcomed in. And so they went out to the roads, and they, most of the people who showed up were common people, even Gentiles, right, showed up to this wedding. Right now, this represents all the believers, all showing up to this banquet. What this represents is all the believers who will arrive in the kingdom via the rapture. How many people have heard of that? The rapture? You've at least watched the movies, right? Okay, no. 1 Thessalonians 4.16 talks about that. It says, For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a commanding shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. First, the believers who have died will rise from their graves. Then, together with him, we who are still alive and remain on earth will be, what are those next two words? Caught up. Remember those. Caught up into the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. There we will be with the Lord forever. So encourage each other with these words. It drives me crazy. Whenever you talk about the rapture, people always go, the rapture is never mentioned in the Bible. And they feel so accomplished to say that. Anybody ever had somebody tell them that? The rapture is never mentioned in the Bible. Listen, the words caught up, when it was translated into Latin, the word for caught up is raptura, which is where we get our word rapture. So rapture just means caught up. So all those people who make that argument, <laughs> there it is. It is in there. All right? Caught up. I am so godly, aren't I? <laughs> Pastor Chris told me to tell you. <laughs> but anyway, so that's where we get that word. So these guests that arrive at the millennial kingdom, these are the people that, that are raptured, the people who before the tribulation are raptured. Now the good or bad, anybody wonder what that meant? The good or bad? Because if all the people that came to this feast were representative of believers who would arrive at, via the rapture, why did it say good or bad? Well, here's what you have to remember. We don't make it to heaven or the kingdom because we're good or because we're bad. The Bible tells us it's not by works at all. We get there because God gives us an invitation through his son, and we believe it. And we save that date, waiting for the time he's going to come and receive us to himself. It's not about who's good. It's not about who's bad. It's about who will believe. That's how we get there. So all the people there were guests, good or bad, because it's not about works. The kingdom, heaven, is not about works. But the reason he brought that up is in the kingdom, if you don't do good works, you will still get to go because you believed and accepted the invitation. You just won't get the rewards that come with the kingdom. Right? So only the faithful can actually serve and enjoy all the benefits of the kingdom. And he's going to actually explain that point in the last part of his parable. Look at this, Matthew twenty-two eleven. But when the king came in to look over the dinner guests, he saw a man there who was not dressed in wedding clothes. See, back then they would have wedding clothes, that you, garments, apparel that you would wear to the wedding. Right? And here stands this guy who's not wearing it. Verse 12. And he said to him, friend, how did you come in here without wedding clothes? And the man was speechless. Then the king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot and throw him into outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Okay, now the wedding clothes here. Remember what we talked about in Revelation? The wedding clothes here represent the good works that a believer has when they arrive. Remember Revelations 19.8, the second part of this says, For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Okay, it explains it there. So these... These wedding garments that he's using in this parable represent the good works 
you have or do not have when you arrive in the kingdom. That's what they represent. Right now, the reason the king would be upset, upset with that, because when I first read this, I thought, well, what if he didn't have the money for wedding clothes? Anybody else think that? You're like, man, what a jerk. What if the guy just didn't have the money and that was the best he had? We're missing it. Okay, at that time, it was customary. A lot of times when, when someone who was of high stature or a king or a noble would have a feast like that, often they would even send the apparel you should wear. So you could come dress the way they wanted you to. And a lot of theologians believe that the king in this parable, the reason Jesus used it this way was because it was understood, it was common knowledge that kings and nobles did that. They sent out what they wanted their guests to wear. Now when you think about it, that makes perfect sense. Now the Bible doesn't say that specifically, but culturally it's perfectly viable and it makes sense and I believe that. right? And that would explain a few things. That would explain why he was so upset that he didn't wear the wedding attire. So he's saying, seriously, I sent you your clothes. I sent you what to wear. All you had to do was put it on. I provided it and you didn't wear it. That's why he was so angry with this guest because he was unprepared and unwilling to put the clothes on that he had sent. Right? He's like, I gave you the right attire. You just didn't want to wear it, did you? You're just being resentful or whatever it may be. You just didn't want to wear it. I made sure you had the right attire. Right? So he basically said, tie him up and get him out of here. He doesn't get to receive the, this part of the kingdom. He doesn't get to receive this part of the feast. He's here. He accepted the invitation. He can't eat in the feast because he was belligerent and refused to wear it. Now, let me explain this. A lot of times when people hear weeping and gnashing of teeth, what's the first thing you think? Hell. When you hear outer darkness, what's the first thing you think? Hell. Listen. Biblically, that's just not the case. Okay, every time it's mentioned, that's not the case. Weeping and gnashing and teeth of teeth are just talk about regret and, and, you know, someone who's remorseful and regretful. Outer darkness speaks, it literally means a place of less honor is what it means. So when he says they were, this guest was placed in outer darkness, it meant that he didn't get the honor of having to, being able to eat at the feast with everyone else. Right? He was taken out and to a place where he could see what was going on but couldn't enjoy it. Right? So it was a place of much regret and less honor. And he was put out there because he refused to come in wearing the clothes he should have been wearing because they were provided to him. Now you guys start to see where this is going? You following me? Because this is really cool. I love this stuff. Right? So here's what that is comparative to. See, God gives us the ability to do good works. Everybody. Did you know that? Everybody. Sometimes people come to me and say, I just don't think God has anything for me to do. And I go, that's impossible. Because everyone he created, he also created them to have the ability to do something to honor and glorify his kingdom. To further the cause of his kingdom. And he tells us that in Ephesians 2.10. He says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. What? For what? For good works. Now here's the big part. Which God prepared beforehand. So we know that that we are his workmanship, which kind of translates into his masterpiece, is the better way to translate that. So we are his masterpiece, and he created his masterpiece in Christ Jesus, meaning the good works that we have come through Christ working through us. It's not that we're good, it's Christ working through us, and those good works were prepared beforehand. All we had to do is put it on. Just allow God to take control it says God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them, right? So 
It's basically saying, I trust you, Christ. Do what you will through me. Show me what you want me to do, and I'll do it. Those are the good works that it speaks of in Revelation that they were clothed with, those wedding garments. Okay, and I think that is so neat because it's, it's kind of the same thing. When, when you have the ability to do good works and don't do it, imagine what's going to happen someday when you answer for that, and you will. Because when we stand before God, before we enter this kingdom, there's going to be rewards handed out. Some people will be able to serve and have a place in this kingdom. Those who did good works. The works that God provided beforehand through Christ Jesus working through you. There are those who will be able to serve because of that. And there will be those who just refused. Now, I don't know if you realize this, but God's grace means unmerited favor, something you can't deserve. When you accept the grace of God, you have eternal life. And you have two options at that point. You can do nothing and ride it out until you get to heaven. You can do that because your eternal life is not based on you. It's based on Christ. But when you get to that millennial kingdom, there will also be no rewards for you. And you will also suffer discipline here. You will also lose the blessings of God here because you're not doing what you were created to do as a believer. Right? This is what it's talking about. And that's why he said the following in verse 14 at the end of this parable. He says, for many are called, but what? you were chosen now a lot of people have really tried to dive into that and make it say a lot of things it doesn't say you have to follow the context of the parable it was just talking about the person who showed up at the wedding unprepared without his garments and had to be put into a place of less honor where there'd be much regret right that's what it was just talking about so we're still talking about that okay so he's saying for many are called many are invited but few are chosen, few will actually put on the apparel that they're supposed to. Meaning, there are a lot of people who will believe, but very, very few who will actually live faithful lives that will be rewardable. That's what that's talking about. That's the context. That's what it's talking about. And you know, when I read this, when I read this parable and I study this, I always think to myself, would I be able to partake in all the rewards that God has for me, or would I have to sit out and watch with regret? Where, where will I be? Because people say, well, it'll be enough just to go to heaven. I don't know about you, but I'm a competitor. How many people here are competitors? Raise your hand. How many people in here think second place is first loser? Raise your hand. <laughs> Thank you. How many people in here think that participation awards should be burned? <laughs> Thank you. The Bible says that we are supposed to compete. He, he said, you know, that but the Apostle Paul talks about it time and time again. He said, you run to win the race. You box as though not beating the air. You want to win, right? Listen, I want my rewards. I do not want to sit the bench in the kingdom. How many people here go, no, I'll just be a bench warmer. I'll watch y'all eat. How many people want to do that? <laughs> Nobody. I don't want that. I want to get there. I want to be a starter. I want to be on the kingdom's ESPN replays. That's what I want. You know, I want my jersey. No, I'm just kidding. That's going too far. But I'm just saying I'm a competitor. I, I, I don't want to be there and have to settle for that, that place of less honor where there's regret. Where I have to say, see all the people who, who actually took the time to serve, serving, and, and me just sitting and watching. I don't want that. Yes, I'm thankful that... I'm going to be with God forever. And when the, kingdom, the millennial kingdom's over, we enter into New Jerusalem and that whole part of the, sec, of, the, of the end times is over. But during that thousand, you know, thousand years, people, 
We're not talking 24 hours here. We're talking 1,000 years. I had somebody tell me one time, there's not one place in the Bible that it mentions a 1,000-year reign. I said, hmm. In Revelation 19, it mentions it six times. That's just one chapter. That's not even talking about the Old Testament and the other places it mentions it. And he goes, well, I just don't believe that. Well, you have the right to be stupid. <laughs> that is your call. I choose not to. I choose to believe what the Bible says. And uh, for a thousand years, Chris wants to be on the playing field. That's where I want to be. This is what he's talking about here. There's a lot of people who will believe and a lot of people who will be content to write it out until the Lord takes us home. I'm not one of those people. Is that what you want to be? I, I would imagine nobody wants to be there. So God's still, nothing's changed. God's still inviting people to this great feast that's going to take place in this kingdom. It's still happening every day, and that's unbelievers and believers alike. But here's the thing. If you're an unbeliever, if you haven't trusted Christ, first of all, I want you to understand something. You've probably been around a lot of churchy-type Christians, the kind of Christians I don't like, the ones that are judgmental and look down their nose at everybody and think they're better because, you know, they're a Christian, when in reality they're just as wicked as you. They're just saved by the grace of God, right? Right? 